Uh, we're going through the book of First Samuel, and we broke it into three different uh, series. And the theory, the series, or the first one was Saul or Samuel, and that uh, took uh, place the first seven chapters of the book of First Samuel. And now we're on the series called Saul, and then we'll be going through Saul, possibly even to Christmas. We'll see. And then uh, we'll go into a series uh, called David, and that'll be the last part of First Samuel. And then David will also move all the way through Second Samuel um, as well. But as we're going through the series, if you remember the first time I brought it up, uh, talking about Saul, it said, evaluate the heart. That's what this book is all about. It's about the heart. Uh, I will choose for a man, I will choose a man after my own heart, is what God is looking for in a king, is what he's looking for in us as well. So these last, uh, last week we talked about uh, Saul's heart, and we saw a revelation of Saul's heart. Just in a sense that I can get God the way I want to get God, because I need him. And there he's, his heart just approaching God any way that he wants, accomplishing anything that he wants with getting God to him. Is that the way you get to God? Well, that's not the, the way you get to God. That's not the way that you get God. Uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Uh, that's a revelation of a heart that when you are saved, Jesus Christ is pouring out of your life. But when you look at the Old Testament, uh, it's, it's, it's very, very similar. But you do not approach God without the forgiveness of sins, without the sacrifice, and without his plan of how to bring salvation. And Saul did just that. He walked right in it. His heart was revealed. He saw exactly who he was. Pretty serious mistake. Tonight, we're gonna, or this morning, we're going to talk um, about his heart as well. Because when you see trials take place, you see his heart arise. And what happened is, is there's going to be a war. And we saw the beginning of that last week. And when you see this trial of war, you're going to see what Saul is standing on. You're going to see what kind of mission that Saul is on. I just want to tell you that we're going to observe two hearts uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to have Saul's heart on display through this trial. But there's going to be another heart we're going to observe as well. And his name is going to be Jonathan, which is Saul's son. So as we read through this passage and, and tell this story about Israel going into war, uh, look what their heart looks like. See what Saul's heart looks like, and then also see what Jonathan's heart looks like. So we'll um, break, break this up into two different areas. In the, in the first area is that Saul's desperate situation, and then we'll talk about Saul's saving grace as we walk through this whole story. I don't want to confuse anybody of what's going on in the story, so I'll just tell you exactly what's happening in the story. Is Saul has desperate situation, but then the tides turn, and God intervenes inside of this war, and Israel is saved again. And that's called Saul's saving grace, but he's not the one that saved him. This is where you see Jonathan step forward and save God's people. So it's halfway through 13, and then we'll go halfway through 14. 1 Samuel 13, 6. Saul's army went into hiding. We read this last weekend when the men of Israel saw that they were in strait, for the people were hard-pressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. Caves, I'm going to get to wherever I can to be in shelter. Thickets, the little pieces of brush, little pieces of wood, make sure I get behind them. Uh, cliffs, cellars, cellars are tombs, pits are cisterns. When you look at uh, tomb, those tombs are not empty. They had lift up the tombs. They had climb in there even with the dead bodies. They just wanted to hide. Why? Because they were scared out of their mind. 
Also some of Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him. And what were they doing? They were trembling. Saul, what do we do? They were looking for him for strength. They were looking for him for help as they are scared out of their mind. Well, Saul's looking at them and says, you guys are my help. You guys are the army. You guys are the ones that are going to defeat this war. That's how he is thinking. You see, he's in a desperate state. Saul was alienated by God. That was the other desperate state that he was in. We saw that last week when the burnt offering, Samuel was supposed to offer the burnt offering uh, before they go into war to get the blessing of God because God fights the battles. We do not. But Saul took matters in his own hand. I can get God the way I want to get God. And he offered the burnt offering. And what is that going to do to Saul? Well, that means he's going to be fighting this battle alone. He's not getting God's blessing because he's not doing it the way God asked him to do it. And so we see an alienation take place through the voice of Samuel. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out for a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. And Samuel rose and went to Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up to Gilgal and Gibeah and Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him. About 600 men. Saul faced three major, major raiding parties. Uh, if we look at uh, what's taken place, is that he had three different parties on all sides of him, completely surrounded. Number 17, verse 17 says, And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Orphrah and the land of Shual, and another company turned towards Beth Horon, and another company turned towards the border which overlooks the valley of Zebium towards the wilderness. We see three different fronts that Saul is being faced with. And as we're watching the news, we see Israel with one front right now. But you consistently see the concern about a second front, war front. Down in the south, we have Gaza. Up in the north, Hezbollah and Lebanon. And then you got the West Bank concerning the things that go to there. So they could have a three-front war. Whenever you have a two-front, three-front, four-front, or even five-front, which we're praying for Israel right now, because who knows what's going to take place if Iran and Turkey get involved, that would put Syria, they could have four fronts immediately. When you're looking at this situation, you're thinking, this is what weakens the army. Because you have to split the army four different ways. Remember how many people that Saul has? Saul has 600 with a three-front war, without God's blessing, and Saul's army is terrified. Not a good situation for him to be in, but it gets worse. Saul had no weapons developed from metal or from the latest technology. Uh, We see that in 19. Now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. What happened is the Philistines have taken them away because they're oppressing the Israelites. No blacksmith can be around because we do not want the Israelites to have swords. So all Israel, what are they going to do? Went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel. 
for the plowshares, the mattocks and the forks and the axes and the fix of, uh, to fix the hose. So they can see that they don't have the military um, machinery or the military weapons to even fight this battle. That's why they're in hiding. What are they doing? They're saying, well, we've got to sharpen our shovels. We've got to sharpen our axes. We've got to sharpen our, our hose because if we're going to charge into battle, we've got to have something in their arms. Don't ever forget who fights the wars. Remember who forgets the wars? God fights the wars. So could this work? Yes, it could work. They're doing everything they possibly could do to make sure that they're armed before they went into battle. The only two people that had swords were Saul and his son Jonathan. We see that in verse 22. So it came about on the day of the battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son, Jonathan. Saul's army is scared out of their mind. He's lost God's blessing. He has three different fronts that he has to fight. They have no weapons and they have two swords. So if you look at this situation, you can definitely say, This is hopeless. And Saul is believing that it is. A detachment of the Philistines have now blocked the passageway of the Michmash. And uh, we don't understand this, except when we look at the process of what Michmash is doing, that was their way of retreat. 23, the garrison of the Philistines went out to pass a Michmash. That's the way that they're supposed to get out if they're going to try to get out. This says that since it is blocked, it's going to be an imminent fight. Because it's going to come down on them. They're going to come down. They're going to go to the cracks. They're going to go to the tombs. They're going to go to all those areas and start slaughtering God's people one at a time. So what did Saul do? Saul knew he didn't have a chance. So he hid 600 under a pomegranate tree. He knew he didn't have a chance. So what did he do? He hid. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. And the Ohaje and the Ohatub and the Echabob's brother and the son of Phonias, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord of Shiloh, was wearing ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So when you see what's taking place, this this pomegranate tree. In fact, the ESV says it's a pomegranate cave. It's just a, a trunk with a, a bush that just grows out and long. And this must have been numerous bushes together because 600 of them were completely in hiding, thinking, I sure hope they Philistines do not find us. You also see that as they are in hiding, there is a priest. We see that in regards to an ephod that is there. He is a priest, so Saul is looking to him for direction. He's looking at him for spiritual strength. He's looking at him to say, what should we do? Saul's heart is, is risen to the occasion. And what is the occasion? <laughs> Hide, run, and be completely entirely paralyzed with fear. Heart is, again, on the wrong track. Because remember who fights the wars, God fights the wars, and man does not. But Saul has some saving grace. I'll tell you the story that Israel wins that day. 
But what was his saving grace? Here is his saving grace as Jonathan, his son, slips away from Saul as he sees that his battles between the enemies of God and God's people. Now when you look at uh, children throughout uh, the Bible and parents raising children, uh, we see that Gideon had rebellious children. And uh, Gideon was a very righteous man, but had rebellious children. We see Samuel, another person that had rebellious children, and another righteous man. Eli had rebellious children, an extremely righteous man. And we're going to see David have rebellious children, uh, being an extremely righteous man. And then you're going to see a golden son, a godly son, a rock star named Jonathan. And who was his dad? His dad was Saul. Saul was his dad. But every time you see the word Jonathan... Think about that. This guy is committed to God. This guy is committed to God. First Samuel 14 starts, Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over the Philistines' garrisons. That is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. I'm going to be disobedient to my father. Why? Because I'm going to follow the king of kings and I'm going to follow the lord of lords. And there is no courage in this camp. And there's absolutely no courage from the king who is my dad. Therefore, I'm going to step forward. Snuck out of the camp without telling his father. Verse 4. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over the Philistine garrison... There was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sene. One crag rose on the northern opposite Michmash, and other on the south opposite Agiba. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. <laughs> you see a man whose heart has risen and it is anchored into God and nothing else. His armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, turn yourself, and there I am with you according to your desires. His armor bearer says, I will follow you all the way that you go, Jonathan. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over the men and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we'll stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign for us. When you look at this story of Jonathan sneaking out of camp, there's a lot of symbolic writing that takes place. You see, he's walking through, there are sharp crags on one side and sharp crags on the other. Uh, what he's doing, he's going, he's descending, and then he is ascending. I'm descending into the sharp crags, and then I'm going to go up on the other side of the crags. A process that I'm going to give my life away, and I will descend to the bottom for the purpose of getting to the top. And then he walks up there, and he says, as soon as they see us, this Philistine army sees us, they will probably come down and attack us but he tells his arm barrier if they don't attack us after they see us we're not stopping <laughs> we'll attack them here's a person that has completely given his life away for the mission of god for the desires of god for the purpose of god laying down his life descending so the purpose that 
he could ascend into battle, knowing that he might die. He's not the king, but I'll tell you, this guy is somebody who is on fire for God. And he sees these words of the Philistines condemning God and God's people, and he's going to do a full-scale attack. Jonathan's ready to do a single-hand attack. We see that in 1 Samuel 14. When both of them, Jonathan and his arm barrier, revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out to the holes where they have hidden themselves. We're being attacked by everybody is what they're thinking. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor barrier and said, Come up to us and we will tell you something. Jonathan said to his armor barrier, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into our hands. You notice that the Philistines didn't go down to attack Jonathan. So Jonathan tells his armor barrier, Well, then let's go attack them. 13, then Jonathan climbed up to on his hands and his feet with his arm barrier behind him, and they fell before Jonathan, his arm barrier put some to death after him. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his army bearer made was about 20 men within about a half furrow of an acre of land. There is a faithful man. <laughs> a faithful man where his heart is completely revealed. I will go when all odds are numbered. I will go because I have a passion for God and what God wants done. Therefore, he lays down his life for God's people. Faithful individual that does that has got something coming behind him. You know what he has coming behind him? He has the power of God. He has the power of God. Remember the power of God left Saul. But what about the faithful? We see in this passage that a faithful stepped forward. He's not the king. He's the king's son. But the faithful stepped forward, and then God unleashes his power. Verse 15, and there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the peoples. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. And God showed up because the faithful showed up. After this takes place, Saul pops his head, coward head out, and felt it might be safe to join the fight. Jonathan kills 20 people, and after he kills 20 people, God comes in his power, and the people are starting to trembling, and Saul pops out his head and says, what's going on? And look what he looks at first. Now Saul's watchman and Gibeon and Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away. And they went here, and they went there. The Philistines are starting to be scattered. So then Saul said to his people who were with him, number now and see who has gone from us. What's he doing? God is fighting a war. God is fighting a war. And as God is fighting this war, he looks at his people, 600 people, and say, look around and start counting because somebody must be missing. Why is God fighting the war? Because somebody is missing. And the power is going behind the faithful. Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his arm barrier were not 
there. <laughs> he looks out there and says, God is at war. Who's left? Two people is left. Two people and God are now fighting the Philistines. So, so what does Saul do? Verse 18, and Saul said to Adijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God was at the time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priests, the, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. And Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. People were like, Saul, are you serious? Saul, are you serious? Should we charge? Yes, there's commotion. Should we charge? I mean, shouldn't we hold on to the priest? And whatever the priest says, then shouldn't we go? And what does Saul say? Saul says to the priest, withdraw your hand to the priest. In other words, there's a war out there and I'm not in it. God is fighting, and I am not there. Therefore, forget God here and make sure that I get out there so I can be seen, so I can be on top, because God's not going to win without me. So he is controlling God. Withdraw your hand. Don't even worry about the priest. Who cares what God says? We need to get in the battle. (laughs) We need to get into battle. And the reason why we need to get into battle is because what would I look like if the war was won and I was under the pomegranate tree? So what happens is they end up charging. Saul and his men watched as the Philistines were thrown into confusion and started killing each other. They went in, but watch what happens when they go in. Then Saul and all the people who were with them rallied and came into the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Saul's army of 600 charged, but when they got to the war, they just kind of looked at it and says, everybody's in great confusion. They didn't even fight. Why? Because God is fighting the battle, because God always fights the battle, and he's going behind the faithful to fight the battle. Saul and his 600 are watching. All the rest of the cowards then joined the fight. Remember the first passage? They all hid in the cisterns, they hid in the tombs, they hid in the rocks, they hid behind the brush. Everybody was hiding. Now Saul went forward to 600 people. Now everybody else steps out. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day and the battle spread beyond Beth-Avon. Do you look at this story in perspective. Saul, through the whole thing, is just being a coward. He's looking inside of himself and he's doing an evaluation of his needs, of his desires, of his motion, emotions, of his risks. He's completely entirely relying on himself. And as he relies on himself, he's underneath a pomegranate tree because he's not going to be able to do anything by himself he's relying on himself and nothing is happening and then when the war breaks out Saul's heart then pops up and says oh we better get involved because I'm going to get a bad reputation if I'm not out there he's thinking about himself his mission is himself his desires are himself 
But Jonathan, on the other hand, his desires are not himself. His desires are what God's desires are. His passion is what God's passions are. His mission is what God's mission is. And therefore, by faith, what does he do? He charges. I go down to go up. Symbolic writing. But as you look at it, that I will ascend and then descend into battle, and then God conquers in the battle, we then see everybody else come out of their tombs, come out of their cisterns, come out of their holes, where they are descended, all of a sudden you see them ascend. You see a powerful movement in an army of an individual laid down his life God's power comes and saves. And when it happens, those who are in the tombs even come up and go to war. So I want to evaluate both of their hearts as we talk about what is going on. Number one, you can observe where a man stands by observing what he fears. Where does Jonathan stand? Where does Saul stand? It's easy to look at it. And you can see exactly because there's fears proclaim it. In fact, fears are, carry a power that is unimaginable. What I mean by that is that when you're afraid of something, it brings immediate attention to you. Immediate attention. It also brings a consuming attention. Immediate attention is like, oh, I'm not going to go take a break. No, I'm immediately scared of what's going on and what's coming at me. And a consuming attention where all your thoughts, all your behaviors, all your passions, all your energies go into the fear. I started rafting shortly um, out of high school when I went to college. And and, uh, my desire was to try to hit all the rivers I could because I love the concept of, of rafting so uh, my wife and I, we didn't have kids for about five years, and, and so we rafted together on different rivers, and, and the rivers started getting a little more wild, a little more wild, a little more wild, and, uh, and she was uh, um, um, not getting nervous, but like, well, boy, Mike, how heavy are these rivers going to get? And uh, I said, well, let me check out this river and, um, and see if it's okay, because it's the Illinois River, and I had to have a friend to go with because I could not go by myself because those rivers are just too intense. And uh, you go by yourself, you're going to get into major trouble. So I found a friend to go on the Illinois River. And I came back and said, oh, it was wild. But while I was on the Illinois River, that friend that I just made said, do you want me to take it to a different level? The Illinois is a class four plus river. Do you want to go to a class solid five river? And we can go down to the California salmon known as the Cal salmon to those who raft. And I'm like, oh, it even gets more intense. So I said, yeah, absolutely. Sign me up. I'll be there. So him and I... Uh, went down to the Cal Salmon River. It was the first time I ever rafted the Cal Salmon. It was about his third time that he's ever rafted the Cal Salmon. And uh, we get to the top, driving up there to the put-in, and it's a high, deep canyon. The road's up here, and the river's down here. And uh, there's one place in particular where there's two Class 5s that are together. One Class 5 is called Last Chance, and the reason why they name it Last Chance is because if you mess up here, there's a little calm water, just a tiny bit of calm water that you can get saved, and that's your last chance before you go into the next class five, which is called the freight train. You don't want to go into the freight train because you go in the freight train swimming. It's just not going to look good. So when we're on the top of this canyon driving up there, we stop, 
And we get out of the car, and he looked down at the canyon, and like way down in the canyon, we saw both those rapids right there. And he says, this is where it's all at. If you can do this, you'll be okay. And then we go, oh, here comes some rafts. And so we started watching rafts go through last chance. They made it through last chance. And then they hit the freight train. One flipped on the freight train. Two flipped on the freight train. Three flipped on the freight train. Four, uh, four out of five flipped on the freight train. And I'm like going, oh, my goodness, it's bigger than it looks from up here. And I looked at him and I said, I just want you to know that this is over my head. <laughs> I haven't done anything like this before. And he looked at me and says, it's over my head too. Let's go see if we can do it. <laughs> so, so we went out there and, and uh, we did it. And, uh, but when you do it, you are consumed with fear. And what I mean by that is you got your eyes open on the marks that will wipe you out. Every single rapid you start looking and looking and looking. It was immediate attention. What did I think about that day when I was on the river? Nothing but the river. That's all you think about. Immediate attention, consumed by fear, that was driving my emotions, that was driving my behaviors, that was driving my actions, that was driving everything about me during the process of being on that river. Sure enough, we come up uh, to the freight train, made it past last chance, come up to the freight train. And I'll never forget this picture. It's so planted in my head that I was following this individual his raft and I was supposed to go where he went and all of a sudden his raft just disappeared I'm like where did he go well little did I know is that when you come up to a bank there's a huge huge drop that's where everybody was flipping with a crooked wave and he just dropped into the hole and I'm like ah I didn't know a raft would disappear like that sure enough I came up to the hole and I looked down and I saw the crooked wave made the turn hit it crooked enough to be spit out straight so I didn't flip just to give you the story that's the end of it but fear drives you, sends you, makes you, it motivates you. It controls you. It owns you. You hear the, the words over a hundred times in the Bible that says what? Fear the Lord. <laughs> fear the Lord. Why did he pick the word fear? It's because it owns you. It controls you. There's immediate attention that goes in there. And there's a consuming attention that comes behind it. So when you look at the concept of fear the Lord, yes, you're, you're, you're tremoring that he's a massive God and you're going to stand in front of a massive God with sin washed away by blood, Jesus' blood, but there's still a fear that is there. There's a fear of adoration. There's a fear of awe that moves you, controls you, that makes you. Fear is the best word there because it is the word that rules your life. And so whenever fear takes place, all of a sudden, you come up. And what you're standing on comes up. We see a lot of negative talk coming about our government. And when we look at the government, all of a sudden there's this fear that just boils within. And then all of a sudden it just, it just comes out. And it comes out with anger. It comes out with passion. It comes out with frustration. Um, what you're doing is there's a piece of, this is what I'm standing on. Or we see it even in our health. When our health is struggling, there's this, this fear, this anxiety, this, this thing that owns us and rules us and sends us and moves us and makes us and paralyzes us and, and it's completely entirely taken on of you. But it is, it's a, a revelation of, of what we're standing on. Letter A is fear is a consuming power that takes ownership of your emotions, controls your thoughts, and then dictates your moves. 
1 Samuel 14.2. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were there with him were about 600. Well, that's the question. What is Saul standing on? He's standing on his life. I want to live. <laughs> and, and if I charge in the battle, there's only two swords. The chances of me dying are going to be heavy. He's standing on his life. I, I want to live. I want comfort. I want protection. I want safety. It's just, just what he's standing on. It's where he's at. He's standing on his own power. And then his mind says, I don't have it. <laughs> I don't have power. I've done the math. I've counted the odds. And therefore, he's hiding under the pomegranate tree. He's standing on his own strength, and he knows that it's, it's not there in him. Now, many of us can look at this story and, and not accuse Paul that much and just say, or Saul that much, because Saul, it's like your odds are against you. But who fights the battles? God does, not Saul. And then we see another heart, Jonathan who's standing on the opposite thing that Saul is standing on. And what is it? It's the fear of God. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, come and let us cross over the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Some of the powerful words in there, come let us cross over to the garrisons of these uncircumcised. What's he thinking? They do not fear God. And they are coming our way and we fear God. Therefore, they'll be defeated if we fight. See how he's thinking? His fear is the fear of God. And their fear is not the fear of God. They're coming to kill him. But he's standing on the almighty God. And these uncircumcised people are threatening me? Let me show them. I will attack them, and through my faithfulness, you will see God at work. He also says, perhaps the Lord will work for us. He's standing on the mission of God. If God wants me to accomplish something, I'm not going alone to accomplish it. See, the fear of God is now defining his thinking, defining his emotions, and now defining his behavior. Because it's exactly what he's standing on. And then he gives the statement of who God is. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. God will do what he wants. And I fear him and him only. And Saul, afraid of something else. And as a result, he was hiding. Jonathan feared God. As a result, he was charging. So when you look at this story, you ask the question, who do I want to be? <laughs> Who do I want to be? Saul? Or do I want to be Jonathan? B, the fear of God washes out all other fears. We see this all the way through scripture. This fear me, because if you fear me, you can wash out the other fears. I will be the rock that you will be standing on. During a, um, a ministry, that Jesus' ministry, we see in the Sea of Galilee, there's a storm that took place and he had all the 12 disciples in a boat. And as the 12 disciples... Uh, we're in the boat and the storm hit. Jesus was asleep in the back and the storm 
tried to be managed by the disciples, but all of a sudden the disciples said, we can't manage this storm. And then all of a sudden they started fearing for their lives. Fear crept in, absorbed them, and started to control them and rule them. So they said, we got to wake Jesus up, because if we don't wake Jesus up, we're going to die. And so they go and they wake Jesus up. And they say, Jesus, don't you see what is taking place? You notice that he is sleeping. He's sleeping, but they're not because they see what's out there. Do you see what's taking place? And what does Jesus do? He gets up, goes to the end of the boat, and he calms the storm. Calms the storm. And then he looks at his disciples. I want to ask a question. Their fear is right here when the storm is happening. After Jesus calmed the storm, did their fear go down? The answer is no. Their fear is right here. And all of a sudden, it goes up by the comments that they said. Because as soon as Jesus calmed the storm, he looked at his disciples and their fear increases and says, who is it that we are standing in? Do you see what God is doing? God's saying, fear me, and you lose the fear of others. They needed that training in their life. The result of having that training of walking with Jesus, they were all martyred. (laughs) They were all martyred. Why? Because they feared God and God only. Number two, you can locate a man's home by observing what he holds on to. Saul is holding on to his life. He's holding on to his money. He's holding on to his image. He's holding on to his kingship. He's holding on to everything that is right here. But what is Jonathan holding on to? What is Jonathan holding on to? And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his arm bearer and said, Come up to us and we shall show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his arm bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of the Israelites. He's holding on to a mission. He's holding on to a direction. He's holding on to God's heart. What is on God's heart was on his heart. He's holding on to God's mind. What was on God's mind was on Jonathan's mind. He's holding on to God's will. What was on God's will was on Jonathan's will. Given an explanation of his home. Literally, the only way to live a satisfied life is living a life that satisfies God. We're going to open the pages of 1 Samuel and we're going to see King David, a man after God's own heart. When his heart was connected with God, when his will was connected with God, when his mind was connected with God, things were good. But when he pulled away, things got ugly. When we look at this world, we say the world offers us so much, but I'll tell you that a satisfied life, if you want it, the only way you can have it is by satisfying God, and that's the way God has designed. Number three, you can see a man's power by observing his mission. First Samuel 14, 17 through 19. Saul said to the people who were with him, number now and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his arm barrier were not there. Then Saul said to Ajay, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at the time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priests, commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Saul was in a hurry, therefore he ordered the priest to stop the inquiry of the will of God. And now let's do Saul's will instead. And when you see Saul's, Saul's will step out, you see nothing. 
But when you see a man connected to God's will step out, you see everything. Verse 22, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely into battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth-Avon. As a result of one person's faithfulness, it was not Saul, it was Jonathan's. A man's heart who is connected to God's. Letter A, person with the selfish ambitions is only as big as themselves. If I was going to complete that, person with God's ambitions are as big as the mission that God wants to accomplish. It's interesting that you see the selfish ambitions come out of Lucifer. You see the selfish ambitions uh, come out of Adam. You see the selfish ambitions come out of Eve. And you see it ingrained into mankind. And you see it ingrained to us. But if that is the case, then we are only as big as we are. But God's saying, (laughs) the battle is much larger than just you. Hang on to my will. Hang on to my passion. Fear me and me only. I'll wash out all other fears as you move on to the mission of God. It takes faith and is often not easy, but it's the greatest adventure that's offered to mankind because we don't fight our battles no matter what our battle is. God fights them. Hang on to them during the process of fighting those. God, many of us are are hurting people, fighting battles within, fighting health battles, fighting financial battles, uh, fighting relationship battles. And God, those battles bring uh, a lot of fear to us. They bring uh, a lot of um, anger to us and frustration to us. God, I just pray that above all the battles that we face, that we fear you and you only. Because we want to be consumed, God, with your mission in mind as we fight the battles that are facing us every day. Thank you, God, for the story of Saul. Thank you for the story of Jonathan. Through this passage, God, we see a heart that is golden and we see a heart that is astray. Help us to be people, God, that have a heart that is golden, one who is connected with you. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.